difficult. And so I want to turn to the psalm now and read that and then talk through it. So if you've got your Bibles or your phones and you like to have it in front of you, you can turn to Psalm 16. It is going to be on the screen behind me. And as I do every Sunday, I'm going to ask you to please stand for the reading of the Word of God. We do this as a way of honoring His Word, recognizing this is the best thing that you're going to hear from me, um, though I hope the rest is all right too. It also is a means of participation, and it should be just one means of participation. I know I just asked you to stand and now I'm talking for a minute, but that's okay. Um, I'm up here doing the talking and you're, you're doing the listening, and I often think the listening is the harder part. Um, it requires that kind of active attention, but not primarily to me, primarily to the Spirit of God. Because my hope every time I preach is that something from the Word of God, something what the Lord has, from the, what the Lord has led me to prepare, is, is something that He uses to speak to you. And that at that moment in the sermon, when you're, you're listening to the Spirit of God and you hear Him, you lose my voice. And a few minutes later, when you're done listening to God and you're like, okay, now I've got to figure out where I am in the sermon again, um, that's a good thing. That's the goal, right? Because you can hear me talk every Sunday for years, and it won't really do you a lot of good. But one word from the Lord is incredibly powerful. So Psalm 16. I'm going to read it off the screen. If we can, is, is that doable or no? Okay, don't worry about it. It is not going to be on the screen. I'm going to read it from the scripture. That's uh, my apologies. That's not your fault, Jeannie. Um, Psalm 16 Protect me, O Lord, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, You are my Lord. Apart from you, I have no good. As for the saints in the land, they are the noble in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those will increase who run after other gods. I will not pour out their drink offerings, nor take their names upon my lips. Lord, you are my portion, my chosen portion, and my cup. You make my lot secure. The boundary lines have fallen in pleasant places for me. Surely I have a goodly heritage. I will praise the Lord who counsels me. Even at night, my heart instructs me. I've set the Lord always before me, and because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my lips rejoice. My body also rests secure, for you will not abandon me to Sheol, nor allow your Holy One to see decay. You have made known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. The word of the Lord, you may be seated. And let's pray. Lord God, I thank you for your word. I thank you that your word is life. That we do not live by bread alone, Lord God, but you provide the deeper sustenance we need. That you are a God who speaks. That you are a God who is with us. That you never leave or forsake us. Thank you for that promise, Jesus. And I pray that you would speak this morning. Speak through Psalm 16. Speak through me. Speak to each of us, Lord God. We come for you, and we want to hear from you, and we want to walk with you, and be in obedience to you, and draw closer to you. Make these things happen, Lord. In your name we pray. Amen. So Psalm 16. Psalm 16 is a, is a psalm of truth and trust. Um, it's a psalm of incredible truths, uh, deep truths, powerful truths, but also incredible trust and deep trust. And that's where the challenge comes in. 
That's what makes this hard, and that's why I like this challenge. That's why I like that this is a, a psalm full of hard truths, because it challenges me to walk in deeper faith in the Lord. And you may not immediately see the connection here between what David is saying, what he's singing and worshiping and praying, what we just read, and faith. But it's there. You look at the first five verses of Psalm 16, and each one of these verses shows David throwing in his lot with God in five key areas of life. And none of them are particularly easy. We start in verse 1, and David throws in his lot with God for refuge, for protection, for security. And for a lot of us, security is one of the hardest things. When we feel insecure, when we feel like stuff is out of our control, when we feel like you know, we're not protected, then we're scrambling around to try to get ourselves back into that place on our own where we feel, where we feel like we're okay. And David says, keep me safe, O Lord, for in you I take refuge. Verse 2 talks about throwing in his lot with God in his welfare. Verse 3 in his associates. Verse 4 in his worship. And verse 5 in his ambitions. And in each case, he says something true and hard to live. Keep me safe, O God, for in you I take my refuge. Where do we run for protection? Where do we turn when things aren't going well and when we need help? Verse, or sorry, that was verse 1. Verse 2. Verse 2 is like, how can you even say this? You are my God. Okay, good. Apart from you, I have no good thing. There's a number of layers of truth at work in this verse. Apart from you, I have no good thing. Every good thing we have is a gift from God. We often look at them, the good things in our life, and, and we feel like we've earned them. We've made them happen. We've brought about that good, but that's never true. It's always a gift from God. And the second layer of truth Apart from God, the things that we look at as good tend to turn bad. Money is a great gift from God, but apart from God in your life, it is very easy to be ruled by money or worship money. People are a great gift in your life, but absent God, most of us start hurting one another. And I don't mean immediately and physically, but we all have rough edges. We need the grace of God in our fellowship to cover over and to allow for forgiveness in the midst of our wounds. And you can look at each good thing in your life, and when you remove God from the equation, it's not too many steps before it's not so good anymore. And then there's another level of this, which is that when, and this is the level at which faith becomes active here, and I'm going to talk about faith in a minute, but I want to lay out the picture of trust first. Um, what you turn to for good is always an indication of some kind of trust. Now, most of the time, it's a very low level of trust. So you think about your favorite TV shows. When you turn on and you watch the new episode of your favorite TV show, you're doing so because you trust that it, like the previous episodes in this series, will be good. It will be entertaining. You watched the first couple episodes, you liked them, they met your standards, whatever those standards are, and, and now you watch the rest. And some of them aren't good. It's not like every episode is amazing. And if you watch some of these epic multi-season series that TV seems to be enamored with right now, from what I hear, a lot of them go pretty bad by season five or six or seven, um, and they lose your trust. They're no longer worthy of that, right? And that's just a really simple example of a way that trust and the seeking of good work together. But the same thing is true in much deeper ways around, for example, people. The people you enjoy spending time with are people that you trust in some way. You trust that 
this is a person you get along with. You trust that you know their character and their interests well enough and you know the relationship well enough that when you spend time with them, it will be good. Most of us tend to avoid the people who we repeatedly spend time with and it's bad every time, right? Because you've learned to trust that it won't be good and you'd rather not do that. And, um, and that's really hard when that person might be someone you have to deal with. But we still have this element of trust. And so on all these levels, when David says, you are my Lord and apart from you I have no good thing, he's talking about trusting God in the midst of that. Verse 3, as for the saints who are in the land, they are the glorious ones in whom is all my delight, or they are the noble ones in whom I delight. Um, who do we look to to be our close associates? And here David is saying, so other translations say, as for the holy ones in the land, those who are like God are those worth spending time with because God is worth spending time with. So I'm going to trust that that's true of his people as well. Verse 4 is about worship, and this one requires a little bit of context. Um, because we don't look at worship and the other gods and things like this quite the same way that they did in David's day. So those who run after other gods will increase their sorrow or their suffering will become more and more. Um, and I'm not going to do that, says David. I'm not going to pour out their drink offerings of blood. I'm not even going to take their names upon my lips. David lived in a time when the gods of the neighboring countries were all closely associated with desirable um, activities or blessings. So Baal is the god of the weather. In a season of drought, you would worship Baal because he will bring the rain. It's a thunder god, right? Uh, Asherah, goddess of fertility. And if your crops aren't producing enough, uh, if you're not having enough kids and it looks like your, your, your nation is going to be in trouble on that front, you worship Asherah and she will provide fertility. And you can look at each of the gods of the neighboring nations and this is how they work. They're, they're capricious, and they're mean, and they don't particularly care about people, but if you can get them on your side a little bit, then they will bless you. So the question then becomes, as a worshiper of Yahweh, such as David, when things aren't going the way that you want them to, it is tempting to turn in your worship to these other gods who promise these specific things. And if you read the rest of the kings, the, the chronicles and the king's story of the kings that follow David, many of them fall to exactly this temptation, to the temptation to trust in and worship some other god than Yahweh for the benefits that they promise. David says, I won't have any of that. Now, we actually do do this today. We just don't have carved wooden and stone statues, and we don't have weird names for them like Baal and Asherah. Um, but we're just as likely to turn to politics or money or um, hanging on to our youth or whatever the case that we think is going to give us what we want. There's lots of stuff out there that makes those kind of promises, that promises you the good things in life that in reality only God can give. And then finally, verse 5, the last part is the ambition. And there's some idioms here that make this difficult, but once you see them, he says, Lord, you are my chosen portion and my cup. What's he talking about? This chosen portion language goes back to the nation of Israel traveling through the desert to the promised land. And when they get to the promised land, the Lord divides it up and gives each tribe a portion. Their ambition while they're in the desert what they're heading towards, and their ambition when they get to the land and they cross the Jordan and they have to kick out all the people that are living there at the time is 
the Lord's portion that he has promised them. This is what they're after. This is what they long for. This is what they want. This is what their whole journey is about, is getting to the promised land, the land flowing with milk and honey, the place where God will finally give them a home for themselves. And you can see how this would play into the way you think. David is living in the time after this is done, but that language is still used to talk about what you're after in life. What's your chosen portion? What are you chasing? What are you seeking? What's the thing that you're at the end of the journey that motivates you to keep going through that desert? For David, he says, my chosen portion is the Lord. And not only is he the chosen portion, he's also the cup. And this is kingly language. This is symbolic around the kingship. And David has already got the kingship. Uh, He's already there. And yet he says, that's not my ambition. That's not the thing that I'm chasing. I want the Lord. And this is so true for David that when you read his story, he's anointed and promised the kingship, and Saul won't give it to him. And David doesn't take it for himself. He doesn't launch a rebellion. He doesn't gather the people up to destroy Saul and his army. Saul chases him, and at one point, he ends up in a cave, and Dave is hiding in this little nook in the cave, and Saul is standing right next to him and can't see him. And David cuts off a piece of Saul's cloak to show how close he was. He could have killed him. He could have stabbed him and taken the kingship for himself, but he won't do it because that's not his ambition. His ambition is the Lord. And he will not be unfaithful to the ways of the Lord, even to take the kingship. This is true even later when his son Absalom does rebel against him and try to do all of the things to him that he could have, in a sense, rightfully done to Saul. And then David steps back and he leaves Jerusalem. He says, if the, if the Lord wants me to be king, he'll bring me here again. Right? He has that much trust. And so there's these hard truths, or these good truths, and this hard trust in these first five verses. And it makes me want to, I want to talk for a few minutes about faith. Um, And I've done pieces of this before, because this comes out all the time when I'm preaching. But faith in God is not primarily an assent to a list of truths. That is often where we start, where you say, yeah, I, I know God is good, right? I know that in my head. But we all know there's a difference between that knowledge in your head, that belief, and that faith in your heart that lets you live it out. And I've said before, and I'll keep saying it, faith is an enacted trust in a person. Faith is when you take those truths and you walk them out in action. It's trust. It's no good saying, you know what, I trust that chair, and then refusing to sit in it. Because then you don't actually trust the chair, your words are meaningless, right? Um, And so David is looking at these things and he's saying, here are the ways that I trust in the Lord. But growing into that, if we're talking about faith as an enacted trust in a person, should be a journey that takes time. This is another difference between when you think about faith as trust and when you think about faith as accepting propositions. Accepting propositions can be done right now. You and I can sit down and and we can argue about something, and at the end of the argument, one of us can be convinced and be like, yep, you know what? You're right. You you totally... you, you knew, and I didn't know, and now I get it, and I assent to that belief, right? And I'm good. I'm done. The journey, there's no, that's it. That's all it took. And sometimes those discussions, it's like three seconds because of Google. Well, let's look it up. See, I'm right. Yep, you're right. And we're done. Um, but trust, trust in a person, it's not like that. 
You don't sit down next to someone and say, can I trust you? Oh yeah, you can totally trust me. And that's it. You put, their life in your, you put your life in their hands, right? Like that's not how we work. Trust takes time. And it usually requires many little steps along the way. You get to know the person. You observe how they interact with other people. Um, you extend a little bit of trust. You make yourself a little bit vulnerable, and you see how that's handled. And then they come through. They're reliable. They're honest, whatever the case may be. And you say, okay, now I can take another step, and I can be a little bit more vulnerable. And we know how this works. We intuitively know how this works with people. And it can be hard, right? Um, and I think when we talk about growing in faith with God, the struggle for many of us is the same struggle we have when we talk about growing in faith with, with other people, which is that taking those steps, being vulnerable, even a little bit, is really difficult because we don't like being vulnerable. And often the way we get around this with people in day-to-day -day life is not because we've done anything, it's because we face a crisis situation together. So if you think about some of your closest friends, I'm willing to bet that at least one or two of them are people who are really close friends with you because you went through something really hard together. And what that does is it forces you to take the step of vulnerability. Like, I don't have a choice. Everything just went wrong, and now I have to trust you because there's no one else here. And then they come through, and you're like, oh, hey, now we're really close. I think about this with my brother which is a weird thing to say. My brother and I weren't close as like teenagers and kids and stuff growing up. Um, we started to get close right around the time that we moved away from each other and we, then it was just kind of getting along. Um, and then we started getting closer in terms of like getting to know each other and stuff, but always on the phone and whatnot. And a couple years ago, five years ago, four years ago, we realized that we'd both fully taken up hiking again. We grew up with a dad who loves to be outside and hike and took us canoeing and everything, but for a variety of reasons, we'd both left that aside as young adults. And we realized that, you know what, we're both doing this again, so let's, he's in Calgary, I'm in Vancouver, let's meet in the middle and go hiking. Sounds like a great plan, we picked a spot, we picked a trip, we organized the dates, and we planned to meet at my parents' house who live in Salmon Arm and then go from there. And, um, and all the while, we're planning out this hike, and I'm making sure we go into great detail about figuring everything out, because, if truth be told, I haven't hiked with my brother like this. We've never done backpacking together. And I haven't hiked with him since we were teenagers, and even then, it wasn't a lot. Um, so I'm not sure that he really knows what he's doing. And I'm also not sure what it's going to be like to hike with him. I have doubts. I don't have trust yet in this kind of a journey. And so we're being exhaustive about like what and how it's all going to work. Now, so we, we figured it all out, we headed on this trip, and I messed up. Not him. <laughs> I messed up. I, I tried to plan a hike that I thought would be within our abilities, and I had looked at the statistics, and I don't, I'm not going to remember the exact numbers, but something like 12 or 15 kilometers one way to this camp, and then we were going to stay a night there and then head up to this peak and then back to the camp, and then out, so three days. Um, and the 12 kilometers, 15 kilometers, had about 1,000 meters elevation gain. So it's a decent hike, but you do it over the course of a day, and it, hopefully it's decent like this, right? So we head off on this hike. We were probably eight or nine kilometers in, and we hadn't gone up at all. And I know we're in trouble at this point, because that means that 1,000 kilometers of elevation gain, the distance that it's in is getting shorter and shorter, <laughs> 
And that means it's going to be steeper and harder. And we're having a great time. It's a beautiful day. And we pass this lake. And then you can see this ridge. And the trail just goes. The whole elevation gain, literally the whole of it, was in about a kilometer and a half. Yes, pretty steep. So we start heading up this hill. And, um, and my brother was not prepared for that kind, like you're wearing a full backpack with three days worth of food and sleeping gear and all this stuff, and we're heading up this hill, and it was hard. It was through, like, it was a pretty overgrown trail. It was slippery at different points because there was water running down, um, and it's just a lot. It's steep, and we got about two-thirds of the way up, and he's like, I don't think I'm going to make it. I'm pretty sure I'm done. <laughs> so I picked up his pack, and I went ahead, and I carried both packs for a little, I can only do that for so long. It's, a lot of weight, but I wanted to help, and we got up, maybe we're three quarters of the way or a little further now, and I stopped, and he caught up to me, and he sits down, he's like, oh, so tired. I said, you know what, I'm going to go to the top of the ridge, and I'll set my pack somewhere, and then I'll come back, and I'll, I'll grab your pack, and we'll get to the top of this ridge, and then we'll see what we've got to do, right? So we did this, I went up, now, he, my brother is bigger than me, he's taller than me, he's stronger than me, and he's very tough. I made it to the top, I turned around, he was almost there, but he was also almost puking. You know that point where you're so tired that your vision is like narrowed, and if you move your head too fast, you're going to fall over? Yeah, that was him. He got to the top, I grabbed his pack, we found a spot, we set up his tent, laid out his mat and his sleeping bag, and he went in and fell asleep. He collapsed. And um, I went on to the campsite, because we couldn't just hang out there. And I set up our camp, and then I came back, and he was just waking up and packing up his tent, and, and I carried his stuff back, and we got to the campsite, and we stayed. And, um, and we didn't go up the peak the next day. He was too wiped. We went back to the lake. We had fun. We swam in the lake. We hung out for the day. It was beautiful. That night, I don't know what. I must have drank something funny, like you're out in the wilderness, and the water's not always good. I don't know. I got really sick, like really sick. <laughs> I'll leave the issues to your imagination, but I didn't sleep much that night. And the next morning, we had to go. My brother had to be back at work. So we get up, and we're hiking back, and I can't even lift my head because I'm just like, oh, feels so bad. And this time, he's doing it. He went ahead and dropped off his pack and came back and took my pack and helped me get to the end of the hike. Now, we finished the hike, and we drove home, and I spent a couple extra days at my parents' house recovering because I wasn't about to drive to Vancouver in that state, and he went off to work. But at the end of that experience, we both know we can trust each other out in the wilderness. We both know we've got each other's back. We're hiking together in Jasper here in a couple weeks, and we haven't been exhaustive at all in the planning. It's like, you do that, I'll do this, yeah, we'll be fine, we got this, we're good, right? Like, we know, we know that we're going to be okay. And what that crisis experience forced us to do was rely on each other in ways that we hadn't done in a long time, which is maybe sad to say of brothers, but it's the truth, especially when you live far away from one another. And um, by the end of that, we had a much closer bond and a much deeper trust. I find that a lot of people share the same thing about their walk with faith, in faith, about their, sorry, about their faith in God, walking and growing in faith in Him, that we have a much deeper trust after a crisis. Things go terribly wrong, you try everything you can try, and none of it works, and you're finally on your knees praying, and God comes through. Because He is really faithful, and He is really good, but... If this is what the journey of faith looks like, you don't need to wait for a crisis to grow in faith. If you're willing to step out and be vulnerable, 
and trust him in the places where he's promised that you can trust him, which is key. It's no good trusting someone where they haven't actually agreed to it. So I could look out at somebody here and I won't pick anyone by name and say, you got my mortgage covered, right? Yeah, you're good. Don't have to pay that. I'm trusting you. And then three months later, when the bank is asking me where all my mortgage payments are, and I'll be like, well, I'm never trusting you again. Well, that's not on you. That's on me. I'm the one who messed up there, right? But if you are willing to trust out in the, take a step out of trust and be vulnerable in the places where God has promised you can trust him, he will come through. He is faithful, right? And I think that you can see some of the journey of David even in these first five verses. Because where does David start out? He's a shepherd, What's the things you're going to learn as a shepherd? You're going to learn about God as your protection and God as your provision. You're going to learn about him taking care of you and about him providing for you. And you see this even as David comes in the famous story, he fights Goliath. What does he say? He says, I fought the lion and I fought the bear and I'm going to fight you too. Right? He's been on a journey. Now, I doubt he started with lions and bears. <laughs> It's just the last things he remembers. But along the way, each step, he's faced greater and greater difficulties with the strength of the Lord in him and with him, and he has prevailed. He's seen the faithfulness of God. The first thing David does isn't fight a giant. That's not where his journey of faith begins. It begins as a shepherd, dealing with sheep and all that comes with that. You go to verse 3, and he talks about the, the people, the associates, the holy ones he delights in. These two are people that God has provided along the way. The prophet Samuel comes to anoint him as king. Does David choose that? Does he know Samuel at all? Like, he doesn't. God is the one who leads him into that relationship, and God is the one who leads him into a relationship with Jonathan, and so on and so on all along the way. You look at the sorrows of those who run after other gods. This too, he's seen. He's seen this along the way. He's seen what happens to people who turn away from the Lord. He's learned this lesson. And the Lord is his portion and his cup. He's seen how good God is in terms of provision for ambition. David doesn't set out to go after all of the things that he ends up with, but God leads him on a good path, one step at a time. And we are called into that same journey, that same journey of growing in faith, one step at a time. And it's no good pretending to be further along than you are. It's no good pretending to be at the peak of a mountain if you're still back at the beginning of the trail. And you can do that, you can lie about it, but you're not actually going to walk the journey. It's not going to help you. And God, will, God doesn't want to meet you where you wish you were. He wants to meet you where you are so that he can take you on that journey. Another thing to say about this, though, is that if this is a picture of the journey of growing in faith, then doubt is normal on this journey. And I know I've said this at Timbers before, doubt is not a sin. The opposite of faith is not doubt, it's disobedience. I wasn't sure how my brother would do hiking, but I still planned the trip and went with him. I decided to trust. And that trust was more than rewarded, like in terms of how he took care of me and handled himself and we did stuff together and he's awesome, it was really good. Um, same thing with God. God asks you to take that next step of vulnerability, that next step of trust. Doubt in that moment is normal. It's a normal emotional response to the stretching of our trust. The question is not, do you doubt, but what do you do with the doubt you have? Because that means also that doubt is one of those signs that where you're doubting is actually where God may be calling you to be stretched. So what do you do with that? The other piece of this journey 
which David goes on to model in verses 6, 7, and 8, is remembrance. Um, It's no good taking a step of faith, trusting, seeing that the person comes through, and then forgetting about it, right? And then three years later, you're like, oh, I don't know if I can trust you. We've never done this before. And, And like, can you imagine if I did that with my brother? We're planning this hike on Jasper, and I'm like, are you really going to be okay? Do you know how to backpack? Have you ever done anything like this before? He's like, I did it with you. I've done it with you several times. Hello. Right? But we so easily do this with God. I do this so easily with God, where I sit down and I pray and I say, Lord, I really need your help. And God comes through and I'm, I, I don't remember that. I may not even notice that. I've had my kids point out answers to prayer to me. Um, So whatever it takes for you to remember the faithfulness and the goodness of God is worth doing because that's part of how we grow in trust. And you'll notice, like I had fun telling the story about my brother, and we have fun recounting that story together. That's the normal response we have to experiences with people, and we grow in trust and we enjoy them. You tell the stories. We're supposed to do the same with God. And David does that a little bit. It's a poem and it's in song form. Here in verses 6, 7, and 8, he says, The boundary lines have fallen in pleasant places for me. I have a goodly heritage. Like, I know what the Lord has given me, and it's awesome. I will praise the Lord who counsels me. And again, this is that remembrance of the Lord who counsels me, the Lord who's given me good advice, the Lord who's guided me and taken care of me. Even at night, excuse me, even at night, my heart instructs me. Why? Because in the night, what's he thinking about? All the things God has done and said. And then verse 8, I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. This is experience speaking again. With God at his side, he stood firm. He stood firm in the face of Goliath. He stood firm in the face of Saul, etc. And on and on it goes through his story. And he knows this is true and he's remembering it. This is that other piece of the journey of faith that we have to do that same thing where we recall what God has done, and allow that to shape our trust. And one of the most important times to do that is precisely when you're being asked to take that step, that vulnerability, and you're experiencing that doubt. The Lord is asking you to rely on Him for provision in a new way. What's one of the best things you can do is remember all the ways that God has provided for you before. And then you say, you know what? God took care of that, and God took care of that, and I'm going to choose to believe that God is going to take care of this too. That's that same progression we see when David declares before Goliath, I fought the lion, I fought the bear, I'm going to fight you too, right? God's taken care of me before, he'll take care of me again. Verses 9 to 11 move us into a different aspect of trust. And this is incredible that David says these things because David is here declaring his trust in God for what he can't ever know and see in this life. There are aspects of trust that we can grow in where you can say, like, I'm not sure if you're honest or not, and therefore I don't know if I can trust you to tell me the truth. And then you can see. You can see whether or not this person is honest, and now you trust them to tell the truth, right? I don't know if you're the kind of person who's going to stand strong in a crisis, but then you go through the crisis and you see, you find out. David here in verses 9 to 11 is trusting God with his eternity, Um, But the only way you can choose, you can't see, you can't try it out. Like, let me check out eternity and see if God's got it. Uh, You you die once and then you find out whether or not God's got it. You don't get an advanced preview. Um, And so you're taking, and we we do this with people as well, okay? So, but where you take what you know of someone and you allow it to inform you 
and fill in the gaps in places where you don't know or you can't know, right? And we're called to do that with God. He promises us an eternal future with him. Um, but we don't get to check it out and see. We have to base that on what we know of God's character, which is how David can do this, even though he's doing it before the promises of Jesus have come into play. Jesus comes on the scene and makes very clear that he's got this. He says, I'm going ahead of you. I'm preparing a place for you in my father's house, right? I'm going to raise you from the dead into eternal life in the new heavens and the new earth with myself and my father and the Holy Spirit for all eternity. I'm going to do that. David doesn't have any of that yet. He doesn't have any of those promises or any of those explanations or any of those parables or all the different things Jesus does. And he doesn't have Jesus as an example, Jesus who does, who is raised from the dead and ascends into heaven and shows us the way. And yet, David knows enough about God's character that he can say, my heart rejoices, or my heart is glad, my tongue rejoices, my body rests secure because you will not abandon me to Sheol, nor let your Holy One see decay. You aren't going to let it end that way. You aren't going to let death be the end of the story, Lord. I know that. You're too good for that. Right? And, and we ought to echo that same thing. And we actually get to come together this morning at the communion table to celebrate what Jesus has done to make sure that we can join in exactly this place so that we can join in God's presence and be filled with joy and enjoy his eternal pleasures at his right hand forevermore. And so I want to shift. I'm just going right into communion with this. We get to celebrate this because Jesus died on the cross for us, because he paid the price for our sin, because he broke down all that separated us from God, and we need to be with God to enjoy this promised eternity. Because he showed us the way, and he made it possible for us to join him, and all of that is done on the cross and in the resurrection. And when we come together once a month and we celebrate communion, that's what we're remembering. We're remembering the ways in which Jesus has gone before us, showing us who he is, and calling us to trust in him. And so Paul relays to the church in Corinth and to us that in the same way it was given to him, he passes it on to us, that Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, broke bread, and gave thanks, and said, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so we get to do that together this morning. I'm going to pray, and then I'm going to explain how this works, and then we're going to celebrate communion together. Lord Jesus, I thank you. I thank you that you are so trustworthy and so good and so faithful. And I ask that you would lead us each on those next steps, growing in faith and growing in trust deepening our relationship with you. I pray that we would have great stories to tell of your goodness and your faithfulness, and that we would enjoy telling them, Lord. And I pray that we would each have deep in our hearts that hope that you have promised that future, that we would look forward and live towards your kingdom. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. So I'm going to call the communion service forward right now, and what we're going to do is we're going to serve one another. 
And the principle there is that we always want to be serving you out of the fullness of God. You're not here for us. You're here for him. Once we've served one another and the worship team, we'll serve them as well. Then we'll take our places at the end of each of these aisles. And when you see us do that, when you see us take our places, then you can begin to come forward from the back to the front. So working your way forwards. And when you come to the front, we will give you a piece of the bread and a cup. And um, you can partake of that immediately. You can take it back to your seat. You can step to the side. However you need to do that to be in remembrance of what the Lord has done. The only additional thing to say is that if you're here this morning and for mobility issue reasons, it's difficult for you to come to the front. Um, either you can have someone get it for you if you're here with someone who wants to do that, or we can bring it to you. We're happy to bring that to you and, uh, and serve you in that way. So let's come and celebrate communion together.